Amen. All right. As we begin this morning and looking here in Job chapter number 42, we have to, uh, in looking at this text, understand really the entirety of what Job has experienced as he has come to this moment. This is uh, a moment that is not something that has come upon him suddenly. Uh, this is something that has been uh, a great work in progress for a good considerable amount of time. And so uh, I want you to hold your place here, but we need to go back to Job chapter number one. Uh, to really to understand. And I'm going to tell some of this story. We are going to look at several passages of Scripture this morning throughout the message. Uh, but I'm not going to take the time to read the entirety of chapter 1 as we get into this. Um, at least I don't think I am. And, and But I think that most of us are pretty familiar with Job and his story. Uh, and uh, we're going to look at just some highlights here to just kind of set the, the context of what he has uh, gone through. And the Bible does say there in verse number 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil or avoided evil. And so this is Job's character. Job is a man who is, when it says perfect, it doesn't mean that he's without sin. Uh, it basically is alluding to the fact that he is spiritually mature. He is, uh, he is spiritually speaking in his relationship with God a mature, what we would identify as a mature Christian, though this is obviously pre-Jesus. Uh, and so uh, we look here and we see that he's perfect, he's upright, he has a fear of God, uh, he is a man that is upstanding in his community, he is a man that, is, uh, um, that holds a place of high prestige, uh, he is a leader in the community, he, has, uh, he is a wealthy man. He owns many flocks and different types of animals in the thousands. He has many servants in his home. Uh, he is a, a well-known, uh, successful and powerful, uh, godly man. And so when we consider those things, uh, and then consider in verse 8, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And so now we see not just Job's testimony in the community, but we see Job's testimony with God. And it's a great thing when we have a testimony community-wise that we're godly, that we're upright, that we love the Lord, that we fear the Lord. But for God to have that same opinion of us uh, is another thing entirely. And so when we consider Job here, uh, Satan comes and he accuses the, the people and, uh, and uh, comes to God. Uh, and God tells him, here's Job. Uh, and then Satan tells God, if you just let me touch him, if you just let me uh, bring affliction upon him, uh, then he'll curse you, God. Uh, and so God gives Satan some liberty with Job and he, uh, and he uh, brings great affliction. And so Job uh, has a place where, and Job is a kind of man that his children uh, are children that he prays for them. We don't know what that means. In other words, we don't know what he's praying for exactly with his children, if they know the Lord as a Savior or if they don't, though we, we do know because of what happens at the end of the book. Uh, and so, uh, but, but Job, is pray, he prays for his children uh, diligently. 
uh, and he prays for his people. So he's a man of prayer. He's a man of faith. He's a man uh, that is godly. And so there comes a day when Satan is allowed uh, to touch him that, uh, that Satan takes everything from him. And so as he sits at his place of business, uh, someone comes and runs in the back door and says, uh, this has been taken and I'm the only one that survived to tell you about it. And it goes through all of his possessions. And the Bible indicates here that it is just that quick. I mean, as soon as one man finishes uttering the words, they've taken all of the camels and I'm the only one that survived to come and tell you about it. The door swings open again and the next guy comes in until they've gone through all of the possessions that Job had, all of his wealth, all of his standing. Then if that wasn't bad enough, the last man that comes in, comes in and says, all of your children were gathered together at the brother's house and the house was toppled and they're all dead. And I'm the only one that survived. So you can imagine getting up and being a man of, uh, of and I realize that's hard for most of us to imagine ourselves in such standing or wealth as Job. Uh, but we can imagine ourselves in the confines of a normal day for us. And a normal day where we are seated in a place where we're transacting uh, our daily duties and business. To have someone come into the, our presence or to the room one after another, the distress. I mean, it would be upsetting to learn of the first one. It would only be compounded every time the door swing open until finally you are shaken to your core. And then you hear the worst thing that I think any parent could ever hear. Not only is your child dead, but all of your children are dead. Job's response is that he worships. His response is not a response of cursing like Satan had promised. He said, in fact, at the end of chapter 1 and verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. It's a pretty amazing man. And he's dealt with things in an incredible way. Satan comes again. Chapter 2 and verse number 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movedest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? 
Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. If he wasn't amazing at the end of chapter one, he certainly is amazing by the end of chapter two. Now, not only has he lost his wealth, not only has he lost his family, not only is his wife there uh, to, in this stage of life, not support him, but to, uh, to bring more despair to his soul as he tries to make sense of all of this. As he tries to wrestle with all of this in his heart and mind, now Satan comes and smites him with boils to the point that in his brokenness, he's reduced to sitting in a pile of ashes and taking a piece of broken pottery to scrape the boils to relieve the pressure and the pain. Sitting there. Now I can't prove this biblically, but I personally believe that this heap of ashes that he's sitting in is not the place where he burned his garbage, but it is the place where he offered his sacrifice. In my mind, in my heart, I believe that Job went to the place when God felt so far away that Job came to the place where he knew that God would be. And again, you can disagree with that if you like. That's my personal opinion whenever I look at the entirety of Job's life. And we see him here now. This upright man, this blessed man, this perfect man. His own testimony with God establishing the same. And Job understood and knew of God's greatness and power. Job feared and loved God and was faithful to him. Job worshipped God in spite of all of these problems. So pastor, how do you know that he uh, was so diligent? Listen, if your first response when you lose everything, including your family, is to drop down before God and worship him, then that indicates you have a pretty strong faith and belief in your God. And so he makes his case. We see that Job suffered and that he suffered for the glory of God, but we also know that Job did not understand at this point the reason for the suffering or what God was trying to accomplish in his life, what God needed to do in his life as he required so great a sacrifice uh, from him. But as great as Job was, there was something lacking in his life spiritually. There was something that just wasn't quite right. His life had changed on the day that he trusted God, but it's going to change again in our main text this morning in Job 42. When he comes to the end of this and he's sitting there in that heap of ashes and he's all alone and is, uh, he, he's going to, gone to this place, then he has a group of friends that come and they sit down with him. Now we criticize those friends and there's much about those friends to criticize. But I will say this on their behalf. They sat there with him in his heap of ashes for seven days and never said a word. They sat there for seven days just to support and to comfort before they began to analyze. Now, when they start analyzing him, they start running into problems. And from the, the, the time here where they first come on the scene up until about chapter 38 or so, there is a series of discussions, a series of arguments, a series of, uh, of accusations, if you will, between Job and his friends. 
And if you go and you read through that, there's a lot of things that they say that if you're not careful to pay attention to who's speaking, sound like they have some validity, but God shreds their argument at the end of the book. And so we don't have time to get into the depth of all of that in one sermon this morning, other than to just say this, the main thrust of their accusations against Job is this, you have to have sin in your life or God would not have done this to you. You have to have horrible things buried that no one else could see or God would not allow you to suffer such persecution. And Job in his response, defends himself. But he goes beyond that. And Job's great sin is the sin of self-righteousness. It is the sin of self-justification, and God is going to demonstrate that, and we're going to look at that in just a moment in chapter 38. But what we see here is here is Job listening to his friends and then answering them and defending his own righteousness. What he is not understanding is that as he defends his own righteousness, he is making accusation against God. He is tearing down the God that he loves. I don't really believe that he fully understands that, but it is the essence of what he's doing. And God is going to show him that uh, when it comes to the end. So if you would hold your place still in chapter 42, let's look at chapter 38 for a moment. And at the beginning of chapter 38, uh, we, chapter 37 ends with Elihu's discourse uh, and his last speaking and words to Job. And then God shows up. So for 36 chapters, they have been badgering Job and telling him there's sin in there somewhere. We can't see it. We can't identify it. But you know what it is and God knows what it is. And if you would just confess and forsake this sin, then you might heal and you might get up out of this ash heap. Now, the, the great tragedy here is, is that that's the way a lot of Christians think. That's the way that a lot of us evaluate one another and judge one another. Oh, this person's got that going on in their life. I wonder what sin they committed. I wonder what they've got going on in their life. And it's a place of self-righteous judgment uh, and God rebukes. Now, so we come to chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job. So again, remember what's going on here. He has been, uh, one friend speaks, Job speaks, the next friend speaks, Job speaks, and then finally you get to the end and one of these friends is much younger and he says, I can't take it anymore. I know that you're the elders, uh, but I've got to say my piece too. And he lays it all out there and then as he does, God shows up. And it's always a good thing when God shows up to set things in order. And it is scary. Listen to what he says in, verse, in chapter 38 in the first four verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, that's scary. There's a whirlwind. God's presence is not a presence here of peace and calm. It is a whirlwind. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. So I'm Job. I've lost all my wealth. I've lost all of my social standing. I've lost all of my dignity and respect. I've been badgered now for days on end by my friends. And God shows up in a whirlwind and says, hey, 
get up. I want an answer. You're speaking as if you are one who has no knowledge of me. Give me an answer. I demand an answer. Verse number four, he says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. So instead of just kind of put yourself in, put ourselves in Job's shoes here for a moment. Answering God in the whirlwind, as God says, you think that you're spiritual, you think that you're righteous, you think that you're godly, and we know that he was, even God said he was. You think you're all of this, but where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I spoke all of this into being? And he sets his attention on Job. Now turn to chapter 40. Notice the first eight verses here. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Job begins to answer back. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man, and I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? So get the picture here. Job again, in his anguish, defending his own righteousness to his friends, has inadvertently accused God. God points it out. And he says, are you questioning my judgment? How dare you question what I've allowed in your life? Now, arguably, God has allowed overwhelming, crushing things in Job's life. But understand this morning that when God brings such overwhelming, crushing circumstances, he has every intention of being there to bear the load and to support us through the trial. And he blazes out there and he says, will you undo my judgment? Are you going to condemn me so that you can be righteous? And the understanding is this, that when we defend ourselves, when we argue back to God, when the Holy Spirit in a service like this brings conviction to our heart and we argue with God in our heart and our mind about how, well, what I'm doing that you're talking to me about, God's not that bad or it's not going to lead me to that bad of a place or it's not that big of a compromise or it's not that big of an issue. Now, when we get into that mindset, what we're actually doing is we are making our God unrighteous so that we can be righteous. Why? Because God is perfect. God is completely holy. God is the essence of righteousness. And in that case, in order for me to say, I am righteous, I'm saying then that means God that you're not. What Job is saying here is, God, you've been unjust to me. God, you have been cruel to me. God, you have been hurtful to me. God, you have abused me. The reality is, is that Job just doesn't have the view that God has. 
G doesn't have the understanding that God has. He can't see the end result. He doesn't understand what's trying to be accomplished here. He was suffering for God's glory, but he didn't understand the suffering. In his life that changed on the day that he trusted in God is about to change again as he goes through the circumstance. Notice in our text in chapter 42, Job now humbles himself and his, from his self-righteousness and ceases his arguing with God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. It's an amazing statement. Things too wonderful for me. You understand what he's talking about? The loss of everything that I own. The loss of my children. The loss of my health. The depth of my suffering. The, the, the crushing blow of the loss of my dignity is a wonderful thing. I comprehended not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee, declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. God, I've heard of you. God, I know you're powerful. God, I know you're great. I know your majesty. I know your love for me. I know your power over me. I know all of these things, God, but now I see you. And it's as if for the very first time in his life, he is looking at God, not as just an abstract figure in his life that is real to him, but now he sees him. He sees him in his power. He sees him in his glory, in the essence of all that he is. And Job here comes to realize that his own self-righteousness and pride and lack of humility has severed his relationship with God. And in this moment, he begins to see God as he is, and he sees himself as he was. And the reality is, is that when we begin to see God as he is and ourselves as who we are, it changes everything. Amen. Three thoughts about this text this morning and his answer here in chapter 42. I know thou canst do everything. I would say, first of all, this morning, he says to God, I know your omnipotence. I know that you're all powerful. I know that thou canst do everything. God, you can do anything. It's all yours. I'm yours. The earth is yours. You, you made it. You spoke it into being. You constructed it. <coughs> You've laid the foundation for it. You've put all of this out there and it all belongs to you and it's for your glory. God, it's your power. And he demonstrates here and he's demonstrated throughout this passage out this great uh, book of the Bible and testimony of God is working in, uh, in Job's life uh, that God uh, is powerful and that all power belongs to him. 
So I don't know where we are this morning individually. If you're having a hard time financially or physically or with health or grieving the loss of loved ones or uh, dealing with uh, transition in life uh, and it's gotten to the point where we're frustrated with God or we feel as if God has abandoned us. And I think that every Christian at some point in their life experiences these types of feelings. What is our response? And it is to realize that all power belongs to God. It's his. And we're his. Thou canst do everything. He said in Revelation chapter 19 uh, and verse 6, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. God reigns. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, that all power is given unto me. All power belongs to God. When we look and we consider and we remember when we're going through the things that we go through, when we go through a natural disaster, when we go through uh, strife in life, when we go through all of the difficulties of the day, we must not forget that God is all powerful. It's all his. And in doing that, we have to realize that all things are possible with God. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26 kind of comes to the conclusion of the story of Jesus speaking with a man about uh, coming to, to eternal life and says to him that uh, you have to come. It's easier for, uh, he says, the, uh, a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to come into the kingdom of God. And the man replies, how then can anyone be saved? How then can anyone uh, enter eternal life? How can anyone accomplish that? And Jesus says to him, uh, to man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Everything is possible with God. And so God brings Job to this place of humility that he might get his focus and attention back on him and that he might display to those around him that God has every right to take us to the highest of heights and to the lowest of the depths. We are his and it is his prerogative. And when I understand that it's God's prerogative and that it's governed by his love for me and his supply of my needs and his walking with me through the valleys, uh, then all of those things, I, I can be strengthened to know that there's nothing that I face in this life that the all-powerful God is not there to see me through. Secondly, this morning we see, and he says, I know your omniscience. I know, God, that you know everything. Notice what he says here as we continue reading. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. You know, we can withhold thoughts from one another. Matter of fact, it's often wise to not be too transparent depending on who you're speaking to. It's not always a good thing to put out everything that you know to everybody that you come in contact with. There are even times when uh, my wife and I don't share things maybe that someone shares in the church with one, to us with one another. Someone tells her something in confidence and she doesn't tell me unless she's asked them, hey, is it okay? The pastor knows what's going on here. Uh, and they agree. Same way. Sometimes people will tell me things and uh, I'll have a counseling session with someone and um, she doesn't even ask. Why? Because we're protecting one another. Sometimes we withhold things from one another. Sometimes we withhold things from people that are close to us in life. 
realized this, this morning that we cannot hide anything from God. We can withhold information from one another, but we can't hold anything back from God. God knows everything. No thought, he says, can be withholden from thee. And that means that he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. In Psalm 94 and verse 11, he says that the Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. Our thoughts are empty apart from God. In Hebrews chapter number 4 and uh, verse number 12, uh, he tells us there, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is not anything about us that God does not know. There's not anything that we can hide from them. And so in recognizing not only God's power, but God's knowledge, we come to the place where we realize that God knows every intention of my heart. He knows everything that goes on in the depths of my soul. He knows everything that troubles me. He knows everything that, uh, that cripples me spiritually uh, and emotionally. God knows every hurt. He knows everything that's hidden, everything that's buried deep. He knows it all. <coughs> Secondly, here I would say that he knows the way that I take. He knows the path of my life. He knows the direction and the course that he set me on. Job chapter 23 and verse number 10, perhaps one of the more famous verses or well-known verses of uh, the book of Job. Ron Hamilton famously made a song from this text uh, when he lost an eye to cancer many years ago. But he says, but he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. God knows the way that I take. God knows uh, the path of my life. God knows the habits of my life and what's going on. God knows everything. Not only does he know that, and in Matthew chapter number 6 and verse number 8, uh, we see that, uh, Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. God in his knowledge not only knows where I am, and he not only knows the direction that I need to go and the direction that I'm going, but he knows everything that I need to get that done. He knows everything that I need to be provided for. God knows. God knows what I need for sustenance. God knows what I need for my spiritual development. God has knowledge that is unimaginable to us. And the knowledge of God's omniscience or his all knowledge leads us to reason that everything that happens in my life is for my development, for my good. It may not always be easy. It, not, it may not always be explainable. It may not always be uh, unchallenging, but I can trust that if God is all-powerful and I can trust that if God is all-knowledgeable, that I can trust God with everything that he puts in my life. Job deals with all of this as he's confronted now by God. It's interesting that his friends are suddenly nowhere to be found. Thirdly, this morning we see this. I have heard of thee in verse 5 by the hearing of the ear, but now, but now, my eye seeth thee. What's the message here? believe it's this, that Job is saying, God, I see my sin and I see your power 
and I see your knowledge. I understand that I have questioned them. I understand how wicked that makes me. And he repented. And he said, I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me. That when he sees things now from God's perspective, what was devastating now becomes wonderful. Not the going through the suffering, but the drawing close to God. But the being developed and becoming what God intended for him to be. Two thoughts here. First, I would say this. He says, first, I don't understand, but I trust you. How could he understand? He will come to understand, but at this point of the juncture, how could he possibly understand what God is trying to do in his life? And listen, when, when you've got loved ones that are going through distress, financial turmoil, or physical ailment, there are going to be times when we look and how could we possibly understand what God is seeking to accomplish in this situation? How could we possibly understand the loss of a loved one, especially a child or a, a young adult? How could we possibly understand uh, the things that just take us by surprise and, uh, and, and steal from us our passion, our joy, our, uh, our livelihood? How could we understand that? But the question is not whether I understand, the question is, do I trust God? The question is, do I believe in him? Do I trust in him? And when I don't understand, I must learn to trust him. Secondly, I would say, if I don't understand, I need to accept his decision. When I don't understand, I must learn to accept his decision. Job chapter 40 and verse 8 is so powerful to me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? That wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? When we entertain thoughts of God, how could you let this happen to me? What we're saying is, God, you were unfair. God, you were unrighteous. God, you have no right. But God and his power has every right. So we look at this this morning, I would say, as we kind of wrap this up, that when he says, but now, that seems to indicate this to me. What Job is saying is, but now, now that I accept your power, now that I accept your knowledge, now that I accept what you've brought into my life, I see you. And Job began to see himself as unrighteous and he repented of his sin and then God gave him power and blessing. Hebrews chapter number 11 demonstrates for us many that have made sacrifices that are hard for us to comprehend making. In verse 32 there he says, and what shall I more say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets 
who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of the weaknesses were made strong, uh, wax, made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn asunder. They were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. All of these, and these all, excuse me, having obtained a good report through faith, Received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Listen, what he's saying here is that God has orchestrated these things in the lives of many for the benefit of those to come behind them. And sometimes God will work in our lives and allow things in our life not for our punishment and not for necessarily our benefit, though we'll grow spiritually through them, but for the benefit of those that come after us. I love the gospel of John, especially when you come to the end in John chapter 21 and verse 21. And what's taking place here is that Jesus has come to Peter and he's restored him and he's told him, if you love me, Peter, yes, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. And then Jesus in verses 18 and 19 tells Peter basically how he's going to die. This is what's coming for you, Peter. You will lead, you will uh, guide, but you are going to die a violent, cruel death. Then Peter, processing all of this, turns about in verse 20, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and saith, Lord, which is that that betrayeth thee? So here's Peter in this discussion uh, and processing all of this and Jesus is there and John is following behind him. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, well, what about him? Notice in verse 21, and Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? And Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Notice what he's saying here. Peter, you're going to die. You're going to die cruelly. You're going to die violently. You're going to die like you saw me die. John's walking up behind and he says, well, what about him? Why me? Is he going to have to go through this too? Jesus just looks at him and he says, listen, if I want him to stay right here by my side, if I want him to stay right here and keep his head on my shoulder while you go off and die, what is that to you? That's none of your business. That's not what I lined out for him this is what I've lined out for you. Follow me. Sometimes we get caught in the trap of feeling as if life is cruel and unfair. And by the way, it is. Getting upset and frustrated with God and wondering why would God allow such things. And we look and we feel like Peter. And I, I certainly can identify here. I don't have a lot of heart of criticism for Peter, especially in this instance. Jesus, I've got to do all of this, but what about him? 
I have to bear this burden, what about him? I have to suffer, what about him? I have to bear the weight of leadership and responsibility for your church, what about him? Doesn't matter, Peter. This is my will for you. And we need to get our, it's in the message is this, get our eyes, it's for us to get our eyes off of what everyone else endures and to keep our eyes on Jesus and to realize that what God has ordained for us is completely different. God has a specific plan and will for you. Did you realize that in this last week that there are eight Christians in Iran that were sentenced to death because they, they abandoned Muslim, the, the Islam? So their picture on the new site. Their only crime is trusting in Jesus. And they'll be executed. Not 100 years ago, not 400 years ago, in 2020. And yet we feel as if God has been so bad to us sometimes. That God somehow has failed us sometimes. God's will for others isn't his will for me. So how do I get to a place, pastor, where I can face those things with grace and with dignity and with spiritual maturity? But now. But now. Accept God's power. Accept God's knowledge. Trust in the one who gave everything to redeem our souls. Understanding that what he wants to accomplish is bigger than anything that we can ever accomplish. We don't have time to look into the final chapter here or the, or the end of this chapter, but I would say this, once this concludes, now that Job has accepted and repented, God blesses him. Not only does he restore everything that he lost, but he restores it twofold. He even gives them 10 more children. Pastor, you really believe that Job's children knew the Lord earlier? Yes, because he didn't give them 20 children now. His children were still there. They were just in heaven. They were in paradise. They were waiting for their father to join them. It's a story that was told years ago. I think over the years here, I've maybe shared snippets of it once or twice, but I want to take just a moment as we close this morning to share it in its entirety. C.S. Lewis once said, you never know how much you believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. In the year of 2000, in June, Mike and Kristen married. Mike had a great job with a construction supply company and Kristen left her fourth grade job teaching, uh, teaching job whenever she, uh, when they had their first child in 2002. 2004, another son was born and uh, they were excited. And in the spring of 2006, they found out that they were expecting again. Through the course of just the normal visits to the doctor's office and the normal tests and sonograms and things that they ran, uh, they were going through the process. And 15, 15 weeks into her pregnancy, in early August, Kristen went into the doctor with her husband and the nurse there began to do the scan. And said, by the way, I gave him the, the weight, the measurements, all that, and said, by the way, I think it's a boy. 
they were excited that another boy, and she was kind of like, I wish I could get a girl, but, uh, you know, boy, they were excited. And, uh, and, but they noticed in, after a moment or two that this technician was being really quiet. So they became concerned, and then the technician said, you know, I, I think I'm going to ask the doctor to come in and take a look at this. So the doctor comes in and looks, and they go through the measuring and showed them on the film there that there was a large fluid-filled sac growing on the back of the baby's head just above the neck and that the kidneys were enlarged. It's a very rare condition. He told them that the name of the condition is Meckel-Gruber syndrome and it causes brain and kidney failure or abnormalities and it's always fatal. They were given a diagnosis without hope. On the first day, he had to go back to work, but Kristen and her mother went to the church and talked with the pastor. The pastor prayed with them and counseled them. Of course, the doctors tried to convince her that what she needed to do was just abort the pregnancy. After all, the baby wasn't going to be able to survive. She didn't, as a Christian, even consider that possibility. At the time the doctor who wrote this article met her, she was 29 weeks along and very uncertain about what the future would have in store for them. She didn't know if she'd go into labor or she'd get to hold her baby. So they talked together and they prayed together and even cried a little bit with her doctor here. And with her calm demeanor, she stated that she didn't know why God had allowed this difficult trial to come her way, but she trusted him with a simple and an uncomplicated faith. On Thursday, December the 14th, the dreaded phone call came. Kristen's mom told the doctor that her daughter had gone into labor the day before and had delivered early that morning. And Noah Scott weighed five pounds and six ounces. He had dark hair. He had deep blue eyes, just like the two other boys. Mom and dad and the grandparents all got to be with him during his short life, which lasted for one hour and 42 minutes. Trent and Drew, his little brothers, or his older brothers, were able to come in and to hold him and hug him and kiss him after he had died. At the memorial service, Mike and Christian's church was a celebration. They had received emails from all over the world, and the church was full. They even showed a little slide presentation showing how this little baby of just a few minutes, an hour old or so old, responded to his mother's touch and voice. Some thought that she was just trying to take a stand for the sanctity of life and make a moral statement against abortion in the midst of our culture. But her goals were much more basic. She stated that she really didn't have any intention of making a social statement or comment, that all she wanted to do was love her baby. This doctor wrote that she did so beautifully and with great dignity. J. Vernon McGee once said that a brief life is not an incomplete life. Noah Scott lived for just moments on this earth, but he touched the lives of many others. And he was loved, surely by his parents, but most of all by a heavenly father who makes no mistakes. Amen. And sometimes when we feel that the harshness of life is God not caring or making a mistake, we need to remember that he has all power, that he has all knowledge, and that he deeply loves us, and that he never, ever makes a mistake. 
See, this morning, life is not a matter of getting what we deserve. The question is, do we give God what he deserves? Pastor, I don't know if I could do that. Honestly, none of us know if we could do that because we haven't been called upon by God to do it yet. We don't know what life brings for us. We don't know how cruel life will be. We don't know what attacks our enemy will throw our way. We don't know what later life is going to bring and what kind of medical diagnoses will come. We don't know what hardships the economy will inflict upon us. But we do know this. We know that God has all power. And we know that God knows all things. And we know that that God, who is all-powerful and who is all-knowing, loves his children and gave himself for us. And he has a much broader view of life than we do. He knows what he needs to accomplish through your affliction. He knows what he needs to accomplish through your mistreatment. He knows what he needs to accomplish through our poverty. He knows. And we know him. We've heard about him. But have we seen him? Because when we see him, when we see him, it brings us to a place where we no longer make accusation against him, but where we can finally come to a place in life where we can say, Father, I don't know, but I know you. I trust you. 